Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Billy Joel's world tour from 2006 through 2007 turned out to be a true page-turner in his career. He'd played virtually no concerts the previous two years, and by the end of 2003, his performances were getting just a little stale. But you'd never know that from the 110 or so dates he mounted when he got back into touring mode. And from all the high-quality footage that's available, he seemed more energetic and excited about playing live than he'd been in a while. The biggest change was a new drummer, Chuck Berge. Otherwise, the players were familiar from the previous decade or so. With the seven-piece powerhouse in tow, Billy quickly served up 12 Gardens Live, a new two-CD album called from a dozen shows at Madison Square Garden in the first half of 2006. In retrospect, that album and this tour set the stage for Billy's career today, which continues with his historic garden residency. But the monthly Manhattan shows were still almost a decade away when Billy hit the road again. For now, let's dive deep into Billy Joel's 2006 and 2007 world tour. I got a little idea for an intro. uh... Okay, cool. All right, so we should begin with an organ swell and be all like, when we last left Billy, you know, (laughs) because the last year we did was 03, and at the end of that one, he, um, you know, he wasn't doing much. It was kind of the end of an era. Uh, He was doing all those shows with Elton John. During the episode we realized that, hey, these were his last shows with Liberty DeVito. Um, By all autobiographical accounts, you know, he was a little down in the dumps. You know, of course, now this episode, we're not doing the years 2006, 2007 specifically. We're focusing on the tour. It's important to put this tour in biographical context because now looking back on it, 2006 was like the rebirth of Billy Joel. This was maybe his, I don't know, third or fourth lease on his career. Maybe, depending on how you want to count it. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating how that's happened to him quite a few times where, by all accounts, his mainstream popularity and his activity had gone dormant and some spark got lit one way or another. And sure enough, he was active and really all over the place again. So now he embarks on this two-year world tour, over 110 shows. And this was really a world tour. I mean, you had the United States and Mexico. You had the UK, the Netherlands, uh, Germany, a couple other countries in Europe, a string of dates in Japan, string of dates in Australia, even South Africa. He was all over the place during this run. And, and we'll get into this a little later, too. There's a great souvenir of this era, and that is the 12 Gardens Live album. But even as expansive as that is, you know, another big uh, two-disc concert set. It really only scratches the surface of, of what went on during these tours. But we'll get into this too. The set lists, a lot of the time, were really, really similar. But there were a lot of obscurities, a lot of surprises in these set lists, even beyond just the 12 Garden shows and some interesting uh, happenings throughout those dates that we get to get into. I'm trying to think back on when these dates were first announced. If it was a big surprise to everyone, because like we were saying, 2003 was looking like it was going to be the last big hurrah for him. I remember being kind of surprised when I saw this tour announced because I didn't think it was going to happen again. Yeah, I could see that. This is also like during like sort of Billy Joel low point. I didn't even know he was 
playing or even realize he had taken off until actually I was at my uncle's house and he had 12 Gardens live. Now, granted, that was recorded at the beginning of 2006 and released in the same year. So that was still happening in the middle of it. Yeah, that just sort of popped up on my radar. And that 12 Gardens Live, that's actually a bit of a surprise how quickly rushed that was. I wonder Mm -hmm. if it was maybe because it was planning to be a longer tour and they wanted to get this out to kind of help promote where he was at. Yeah, you know, I read the review on AllMusic and who knows if they're right or not, but I don't think they got the story completely right. They said in passing, he put it out to help promote the My Lives box set. Uh, I have a problem with that because we know Billy really didn't care about the My Lives box set. Yeah, I feel like he wasn't going to do too much out of his way to promote that other than allowing it to happen in the first place. Right. So, you know, the idea that he was like, oh, man, let me let me put out a live album and go out and tour to promote. It doesn't quite jive. I almost wonder if it was more just something that took little effort on his end that helped fulfill the contract to Columbia Records. Yeah. I mean, that's what he's alluded to so many times. He's like, I don't know. Man. They just put out live albums on me. <laughs> you know, it's right. like basically they put out live albums, they put out compilations. But as we get into this more, you know, when you put this in the context of it really seeming like a rejuvenation for him, when you put 12 Gardens Live into context of this tour and what happened afterwards, it almost feels like a proof of concept or like a statement of intent. You know, like his manifesto for the next, what, 15 years? Bringing it up to now, which although nobody's playing live shows anywhere, but for all intents and purposes, the Garden Residency is still going on. Right. So it's interesting, too, that as we drop in at this point in time in 2020, he kicks off this next phase of his career with 12 Gardens Live. And at this point, it's all about the garden. (laughs) I remember they made such a big deal about that. The 12 sold out shows in two, three months time and nothing will top this. Well, he found a way. Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to play here once a month and sell it out for years. Just to really stick it to Springsteen, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. So the big change here is that Liberty's out, Chuck Berge's in. I remember when I bought the tickets for this tour because I saw the third night of the tour, and we'll get into that in a bit, but I didn't even know at the time that Liberty wasn't in the band. This was during a period where he and I kind of lost touch for a little while. It wasn't until I saw him live that I didn't know for sure that he wasn't in the band, if memory serves. The way they say, you know, you don't get fired. You just don't get called for the next tour. And that, that's and, what happened, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I, I wonder because he, you know, he did the last tour, 2003, but then mm-hmm. there was that sizable gap. At some point, that's when things went down and Billy yeah. just moved on. I assume he just moved on and didn't call him when he started doing these shows. That's my guess. Right. Well, he says in the book, too, that all of a sudden people were calling him up for tickets and he's like, what tickets? Yeah. You know? Right. I'm not playing in Milwaukee. I'm not in New York. What what are you talking about? So I guess, you know, we'll talk about Chuck a little as we go into this. And, you know, as I start making my notes on shows and stuff, and I feel bad because I'm always on Chuck, but, you know, I'm a drummer. So it's what I just key into, you know. I guess we'll start by talking about 12 Gardens Live because that's early in the tour. And then we'll kick from there. Because 12 Gardens Live is an amazing set list, obviously called from 12 shows. So it's cherry picked. But as great as it is, it's certainly not representative of the shows that came afterwards. You know, looking at the set lists later, you wonder if this is, well, I want to say you wonder if this is where he starts getting the idea for these sort of greatest hit shows that became the Garden Residency. But as we saw from 03, he was already kind of settling into his set list. So it's tough to say. And I think that actually kind of started back in 97, 98 when he was doing okay. the Greatest Hits 3 tour. Oh, Okay. 
but yeah, you certainly weren't going to see him in uh, Brisbane, Australia, and get uh, Laura or uh, a room of our own. Right, the Great exactly. Wall of China. Yeah, you know it's funny too. Looking at Twelve Gardens Live, the obscurities he pulls are mostly from the Nylon Curtain. You know, it's three obscurities from Nylon Curtain, and I think Nylon Curtain. Even more than Glass Houses was the one where, as good as it was, the second side, the B-side of that album was largely forgotten. Not forgettable, just forgotten. Yeah, that's a fair point. Nylon Curtain didn't have that song like Sleeping With Television on on Glass Houses. Glass Houses suffered in a lot of ways the same fate of there being no hits on the B-side, but it had Sleeping With Television on, which is becoming this kind of sleeper in his canon. I mean, we've talked about it a bunch. Here and there, you hear people talking about it in passing. A couple weeks ago, the YouTuber Professor of Rock um, named it as, a pro- I think, like the number one of his top five best Billy Joel hidden gems you need in your life. And then 52nd Street, again, 52nd Street doesn't have any of the hits on the second side, but it has, I would say, like Until the Night and uh, Rosalinda's Eyes, at least, are pretty strong, pretty solid fan favorites. Half a Mile Away is a personal favorite of mine. I don't know where that sits among the gentry though (laughs) you know right yeah (laughs) so it's fun to see the nylon curtain really represented on 12 gardens live here looking through the track list what i find fascinating is how different it is this is loaded with both hits and deep cuts yeah at the same time not representative of the live show yeah you know it starts very close to a lot of the shows that come afterwards angry young man my life and everybody loves you now yeah goes all over the place after that sir right when you put everything in historical context the other reason that 2006 really feels like the rejuvenation and which actually made it a little hard to do some unbiased research is that by 2003 there's footage out there of these concerts but just the copies out there aren't great and you never get a full sense they're definitely they're great for research you know like when uh, we're agreed. doing it we're like oh and this is what the arrangement sounded like and this is what his stage patter sounded like but you know you have to be lunatics like us to sit there and be like man yeah i want to listen to that show from uh dearborn heights you know july of 03 you're like nobody's right. doing that right right but i'm right. not going to go back to it yeah well starting in 06 you have 12 gardens live and at least two pro shot concerts one in italy one in yep. Japan, with beautiful audio, certainly not as meticulous and polished as 12 Gardens. And and then after that, you know, he's very well documented all over again. 2003 was the end of this sort of VHS cuts. Who knows what those were, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, I guess a lot of them were people still trying to sneak their, their uh, video cameras in, as far as I could tell. Or some of yeah. them were like the feed is something like that, you know, like the video feed. The technology was changing because that was obviously before the days of smartphones and everything like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you didn't get those kind of recordings really until the, the past 10 years. Yeah, we're really spoiled now, at least with Billy's stuff, where just about everything he does gets such a, a great polished video treatment there on YouTube. And uh, it is a funny way of thinking about it. Every video from 03 felt like I was seeing an off Wednesday night show. That's what it felt like. Shoddy video, and you just felt like you were there, and you're like, ah, oh, this is great, but shoot, I gotta go to work in the morning. Right. This wasn't right. like back in the day where we'd hang out in the parking lot and this and that. And then you start with 12 Gardens Live, and you got all these shows, and it feels like a Saturday night every time. It feels like yeah. a party night. And it's yeah. all the video. I think maybe he was sounding maybe a little tired, maybe going through the motions by the end of 03, 
Yeah. But he definitely sounds more energized on these shows. He, he does. And I think part of that, too, was him starting to get into these deep cuts more and play some of these songs out that he hadn't done in years. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a Liberty fanboy, so I'm always partial to what he brought to the table. But no doubt when you bring in a new drummer to your live show for the first time since 1976, yeah. well, that's going to change the dynamic in a whole new way, too. Everything is new for this guy now, for Chuck. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's going to get Billy excited and give him some new energy, kind of like when Stormfront came along and you had Tommy Burns and Crystal Talufero join the tour. You know, it kind of gave things a freshness in his eyes and he seems to have fun with that. For sure. I wonder if this is where they started putting Crystal in the position she's at blocking wise on the stage where she's behind him and she becomes a secondary focal point. Because we know Liber- that used to be Liberty, you know, just flailing around, doing not flailing, but, you know, right. swinging wide and, and being a big focal point. And we talked about it on Shay, where she's really very well positioned to Billy's right, you know, right behind the piano. So right. that when she's doing a dance and you can tell some of these things are choreographed and planned out, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a in the best way possible and you know she's very evocative with her facial expressions and things like that she's definitely the one playing for the camera as opposed to Tommy you always see Tommy Tommy just always looks like he's in the corner of a bar you know right (laughs) right. like a maniac but he's just like black t-shirt on like he's gonna walk off get his beer between sets yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah, so pop I'll, back up on stage, <laughs> set it on, you know, set it on the cabinet. Yeah. And just like cigarette, you know, in his headstock, you yeah. know, just like it's that vibe some, for sure. You're going to get some text in his wife or something between right, songs. Right, totally. Um, but yeah, this is where you really see Crystal uh, mm-hmm. come out as a, as a major player on stage because if memory serves, you know, now I'm reaching back to my seventh grade memory of seeing him at Nassau Coliseum. I am almost positive that if you were looking at the stage, Billy's always on the right and Crystal was up on the left. I dug up some of the photos that I took when I saw him in 2003. Um, uh-huh. That was, remember the story when uh, I took Donnie from the Verve Pipe with me and all that? Yeah. So there's a picture of the three of us behind Liberty's drums on the stage. And if you're facing the stage, Crystal is immediately to your right if you're looking at the stage. Okay. So she was on that side already. Yeah. And then okay. Keyboard Land was immediately to Liberty's right. Yeah. You know, on the other side. All three of them take up a lot of real estate. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly after Billy, they all take up the most very easily. You know? Absolutely. Well, with Tommy, there's no amps on stage. There's no nothing. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a foot pedal. He's got a pedal um, board. Yeah. Pedal board. Yeah. And he's on a wireless system, so he can he's mobile. Yeah, you're right. Those, those three definitely take up a lot of real estate on the stage. Yeah. Anyway, so let's talk Chuck. Right. Okay. I get the feeling again. I wasn't listening to him that much. Or I wasn't paying that much attention at this point in my life. And as much as you were listening to him, you know, you hadn't even realized Liberty was out of the band. It really seems like Chuck sort of snuck in there. Like this was there was no big announcement that you know Lib was out and this new guy Chuck was in. It's not something that was making MTV news like when you know Jason Newstead leaves Metallica. It's not right. that type of thing with <laughs> Billy and the guys in the band. Mm-hmm. If someone's in, someone's out, they're just in and out. It's yeah. not a big to-do. Right. Sidebar, I bet you these days this wouldn't have gone unnoticed. Oh, no. We would have caught this on the Facebook groups. But anyway, so in comes this new guy, Chuck. And the difference between him and Liberty, as I, as I sat and really listened to these, is that Liberty, I feel like he has a well-defined swing. He's almost angular in his groove. Chuck kind of flows more you know chuck just kind of flows over the music 
in a way. Mm-hmm. And you don't notice until you start listening to this that like there's a bit of Liberty sharpness that is replaced by Chuck's overall sense of flow. What's funny though is that he, you know he does tend to start throwing in some metal stuff here and there. We never really heard any double bass on uh, Billy Joe, but if you listen, there's a couple of spots where there's some yeah, 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 some sixteens on the kick drum. Yeah, yeah, you know stuff like that. And the other thing I notice he puts in, and I think he does it because now Angry Young Man is the one you got to listen for, and it's a great opener and it harkens back to an earlier era in Billy's career. But I got to be honest. I feel like it's sticking it to Lib a little, putting that one first. Those are such signature Liberty fills. Like you are really yeah. making a statement by having the new guy take Blame those it. on. Yeah, yeah. And those, you know, I mean, they're not difficult fills, but Liberty plays them in Liberty's way. It is sure. unmistakable. But the other thing that Chuck does, the first time you notice him put his stamp on something, is he does like the John Bonham cross tom fill. <laughs> yeah. So this is how I explain this. And here's another little piece of trivia I discovered, I think, last year when I was teaching drums. Okay, so everybody, pause for a second. Pull up YouTube. Go to Days and Confused by Zeppelin, right? Because here's where it happens is, after the spacey part in Days and Confused, you know, you got that riff, and then it, and it opens a little. And then uh, right before it stops again, uh, Bonham does those fills like, right? And it's all alternating bass drum, two toms, a bass drum, and another two toms, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Now, you go from there to Over the Mountain by Ozzy, and it's got that, what Zappy used to call the Quaalude Thunder fill. Pop, pop, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, what you need to do with that one is you go on YouTube, because you can do this on YouTube. You bring it down to 50% speed. It's the exact same fill. It's just twice as fast on over the mountain if you take yeah, it half speed yeah. really <laughs> exactly it's like almost i think he puts his left foot in somewhere but in terms yeah. of the bones of it it's like 95 yeah. the same thing just way faster. i never thought to do that that's funny so chuck likes to throw that one in here and there he gives you a little quaalude thunder on, mm-hmm. <laughs> on his set that's like his, his two metal moves there right the other big thing i noticed and i am almost positive that these are new arrangements But I can't be sure because, again, there's such a jump in quality for the concerts that we're seeing now. You really notice that the band, and I think especially Tommy, outlines the walks and the chord changes a lot. So you hear it on things like The Stranger and Stiletto. Yeah. You know, when you hear a band go like, ba-dum-dum, you know. Yeah. Right. They do stuff like that. A lot of times, you know, if the guitarist or whomever is playing the chord, you get that sense of a walk down. You get that descending feel. But there's at least three notes being played in a chord every time. So you get that walk down feel, but it's it's not always well defined unless they yeah. voice lead it. What you notice starting on these concerts is there's a lot more voice leading. There's a lot more of a, of a riff feel on those. And they punch them up on a lot of those like real distinct chord changes. And uh, I'm sure somebody knows music theory a lot better than me can string me up on this. Mm-hmm. Although sidebar, our fans are pretty cool because like nobody's like, you know, snorted and pushed their glasses up on me yet. You know, mm. for all the for all the talking I do out of my ass about this stuff. <laughs> now they're great. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of times you're, you're just changing chords like every mm-hmm. measure or so and blah, blah, blah. And it's not that you don't notice, but it's just a natural flow of the song. And sometimes you will change chords in rapid succession to indicate a melody. Like the most obvious version is probably Giant Steps by Coltrane. It's like, ba-da-da-da-da. Like every right. note of the melody is a different chord. 
And Billy, of course, there were times when he changes chords very deliberately like that to outline or indicate a melody. And so those walk downs and those sorts of chord changes are very much more punctuated and accented, mostly, I think, by Tommy on this. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. I feel like when David and Russell were in the band, their approach was more of a less is more kind of situation where they would let things breathe a ton. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying anything one's right or one's wrong, but it's just yeah. different styles of approach to the right. song. They had more of a tendency, I think, to let things breathe a little bit. And then Tommy would find these spots that didn't exist and add his own color to it. And you have to wonder, too, how much of those arrangement changes came from the Moving Out production? How much of this came from Broadway? I feel like it really did. Having seen the 2003 tour, and then the 0607 tour, and then also to seeing the Broadway show. Mm-hmm. I felt like when I saw Billy in, in this run here, that to me, it felt much more like the Broadway show than the Billy yeah. Joel show. I could see that, you know, having not seen Moving Out, but noticing these changes where it points towards almost like a big band sort of standards kind of thing, where if he had horns, it would have been like the horns punching. It was a little bigger, a little flashier, and a little... yeah. Yeah, it was. It definitely had a different vibe that way. Yeah, but you know what's funny is you know going back to Zeppelin is that they almost play them like guitar riffs all of a sudden. You know, like when we were talking about Orpheum, we were talking about how the guitarist on that boot from seventy was seventy four, seventy three, seventy four, seventy four, seventy four. Um, yeah, you know, it sounded great, but just sounded like a guitarist, a little more riffy, a little more guitar centric. Right. It wasn't Billy's sound. Now they bring just a hint of that back. The walk downs become riffs. And the chord mm-hmm. chains become muscular kind of, you know, like really statements, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I feel like the moving out Broadway show, musical arrangements certainly had elements of what Billy was doing. Because, I mean, they're Billy Joel songs. But yeah, there was a lot of colors and a lot of different things added for the Broadway show to accentuate maybe what the dancers were doing or to give a certain spot a little flair or pop here that wasn't typical in Billy Joel's version. And I feel like those just transitioned into Billy's live show when Chuck came on board. And, you know, obviously Tommy and David Rosenthal were involved in the production as well. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, you know, just once more to that point, it doesn't sound like Broadway. It only sounds like Broadway if you know it came from Broadway. You know, again, if you know the context of this, that, you know, coming off, maybe he's feeling a little stale in 03. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. this thing's out on uh, Broadway, you know, garnering hits and sold out shows and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of brought that in and bringing the players in, too, obviously. And thinking back to these shows, I don't think I gave Chuck a fair shake. He is an incredible drummer. Nobody in this band would have the gig if they weren't more than capable of having the gig. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that's just the end of the day. I mean, they're only going to have A-list players play in these bands. But with these songs that you grew up with and are so ingrained with you with how these guys played and the energy and the feel that Liberty brought to the table. I mean, like we said, 1976 to 2003, every drum note that you're hearing on a live performance and most of the records was Liberty. Yeah. And when you are so used to it and you hear somebody else do it, your first instinct is like, well, that's not how it goes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that's not how it's when you open with, with angry young man, you're like, that's not, that's not the that's deal. No, he no, goes no, up no, to that's that. That's not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Give me those sticks. Let me show you something, pal. <laughs> and I found myself doing that when I saw these shows. Oh, yeah. By myself being so hypercritical of those licks, those fills, that feel is so signature to the sound that when it was gone, to me, it felt like I was watching a cover band at first. Yeah. Until I finally got used to like, well, this is how they sound now. 
But right. it was such a change for me that it just threw me. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, I saw him in 08 and I was like, what is something with something's who the hell is that back there? You know, <laughs> that was like the reaction I had, you know. Mm -hmm. And one thing I noticed, Liberty has a lot more of a push and a pull based on yeah. many factors. Mm -hmm. But Chuck has a great meter, but he plays things much closer to the album tempos. And in my opinion, if you play a lot of these songs at album tempos in a live setting, they feel really slow, even though That's there's true. a right tempo. Yeah. Moving Out's a great example of that. Mm -hmm. You have to take that one up and pick. Most of them were so much faster live, and it just yeah. gave it such a, like, sometimes a fantasy. It's not a very fast song, but if you listen to, like, the Russian tour and, like, the 80s tours where they were playing that song, it's really, really hopping. You know, that's a good point. Maybe, you know, that's part of the other thing when you make this leap from uh, VHS concerts to digital or whatever they were recording these on. You know, they did a good job of pushing some high end up on 12 Gardens Live. And I always say the more high end you have, the more shimmer on top, the more excited you get. It just tickles your soul a little. But yeah. uh, other than that, all the other ones feel just a little sedate. It feels like a calm summer's eve, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I think, yeah, those tempos might be a big part of that. Just that they were... Cruising. Not in the bad way, just cruising, you know. Some of those songs like at CW Post, it's like, oh my gosh, these guys are on speed right now or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You kind of lose that, but you know, everybody's getting a little older. Okay, so speaking of it, so all right, I'm going to tie a little bow on 12 Gardens Live, but I want to jump off that point about tempos. Yeah. Anyway, so 12 Gardens Live, you know, essentially kicks off the 0607 tour. I mean, these are culled from shows through the first sort of half or so of um, 2006, mm -hmm. but it's the statement of intent. We got Billy Joel, obviously, Tommy Burns on guitar, Andy Cichon on bass, Dave Rosenthal on keyboards, Chuck Berging on drums, Chris Otalafiero percussion, Carl Fisher on uh, trumpet, trombone, and saxophone, Mark Rivera, saxophone primarily, but also some guitar, percussion, backing vocals, things like that. The big mm -hmm. special guest, of course, on 12 Gardens Live is Richie Cannata coming back. And I'm not sure of the circumstances why, like what led to it and then why he was gone again. We'll ask these guys one of these days. We'll get them. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. The tour kicked off January 7th, 2006 at the Bank Atlantic Center, which is in Southern Florida in town of Sunrise. And this is a legendary show in my eyes because he starts the show with Piano Man. I noticed that because it wasn't in the encore. <laughs> yep. But I thought I remembered a story or something of him saying at the end, he's like, well, now that we got that one out of the way, some joke about just getting yeah. it out of the way. Can you imagine yeah. if you were a casual fan and you showed up late and you missed it? <laughs> yeah, you're like, That's a, it's cool, man. We'll get to it at the end. He what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the time I saw Dave Matthews and he opened with Ants Marching just to get it out of the way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's Piano Man. And then this is still the first one. Everybody Loves You Now, which must have been a surprise at the time, but... That made it on 12 Gardens Live, and that mm -hmm. was also you know, on a lot of these shows going forward as the second or third song. Most of them, it was after that, it was Angry Young Man, My Life, and then yep. uh, often Everybody Loves You Now. So Everybody Loves You Now just kind of jumps back into the sets here. You know, another sort of statement of intent, I think. Yeah, and this song, it had been on the shelf for a number of years. It had been a while since it was played with any regularity, and um, from here on out, it made pretty regular appearances for sure. 
Now, see, this one I'm going to say at the time was probably a surprise as well. Um, but yeah. he also played this one all through the, all through this tour, and one he plays regularly now is Zanzibar. Yeah. So this one came out after a while. I remember seeing the show I saw, and Zanzibar came out, and it was so rare at the time. Yeah. I don't know that he played it much past the 52nd Street tour. That was a big surprise that they brought out, but it became one of those things that, largely due to the addition of Carl Fisher, this was a song that really spotlighted him. But this song ended up in the set list for so many years, it lost the specialness of it. Though again, I remember seeing him in 2008, it was a stadium show, so it was outdoors at the ballpark. And like that was just amazing. I felt, I, I'm like, wow, this must be what it's like in Europe, where like a, you know, like a jazz concert would be this big, like just for that moment, like just the lights, you know, Carl's, yeah. Carl's playing, like everything about it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like I gotta say a lot of credit to Carl. I don't know much about Carl Fisher, but you know, when you think of a guy playing in a horn section in what's essentially a pop band, you don't think about a lot of jazz chops. Right. And you would have thought they brought in a special guest to do Zanzibar. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just based on like, oh, you know, he's a, one of right. three horn players. Yeah. He busted out like a madman yeah uh so now we get a whole bunch of other obscurities in this show laura makes its appearance all for lena sleeping with the television on uh i guess we'll we'll the night is still young charted but you know it's it's not in that a-list canon yeah yeah and then famous last words he ends the show with uh on the second encore seems from an italian restaurant then famous last words was this when you saw him do stop in nevada no, Stop in Nevada, oh, really? that was uh, Portland 2017, so that was just a couple years back. Oh, okay. Well, this is the somewhere, I will find it later. It was during this run where he brought it back for the first time since the 70s. It was the wow. first time he did it. Yeah, and then, you know, over the next couple shows, we got a couple of us sprinkled in. I, I, I said Great Wall of China, right? Big Man on Mulberry Street, where's the orchestra? Big Man on, yeah. So, you know, this Sunrise Florida show really set the tone for the first leg and ultimately 12 Gardens Live, you know. You could figure that he must have had it in his head that he was going to put these on there because he's playing them early, you know. I think you're right. I think that may have already been the plan. And they were trying to kind of break some of these songs live that they were going to do during the garden run. Right. So this was January 7th, first night of the tour. And I actually happened to be at night number three of the tour. I saw January 12th, 2006, and that was at the St. Pete Times Forum in uh, Tampa, Florida. And by this point, I think the standard set list was already getting settled in. We did get some interesting ones on that. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but uh, Zanzibar Stiletto. We also got the Ballad of Billy the Kid, which wasn't around a ton right then. Um, Mm. All for Lena, Goodnight Saigon. I go to Extremes, which did not get a lot of play during the Chuck era. Yeah. That groove was such a liberty thing. And yeah. But what I remember about this tour, this was at a time where I was tour managing. I was tour managing this guy, Ashton Allen, mm-hmm. and uh, which I've talked about on previous episodes. We were touring together during this point. We toured through most of 2005 and the first nine months of 2006. And I saw Billy announce the tour. And this was also around the time when U2 announced the tour. And Ashton was a big U2 fan. I had never seen them, but I always liked U2. Mm-hmm. And so... He bought a pair of tickets to see U2 in Chicago for like Uh November of 2005. I bought a pair of tickets for Billy Joel in January in 2006 in Florida. Yeah. And so what we did is we had two points 
on a tour. So we're like, okay, mm-hmm. around this date, we got to be in Chicago. And around this date in January, we got to be in Florida. And so we basically routed the tour based on having concert <laughs> tickets to these two shows. That's the advantage of being the guy. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So we kind of were in charge of routing the tour because, you know, we didn't have a van. We didn't have any of that stuff. It was us in a Chevy Suburban with a trailer kind of deal. You know how right, that goes. Right. So we were doing the driving. So we decided to route the tour ourselves based on those two shows. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> That's great. And one thing I remember about this, too, I still have my concert shirts from this show. This is when he was first starting to do some retro shirt designs. So he had a Glass Houses shirt. He had a 52nd Street shirt. Uh He had a Stranger shirt, which were all like a gray slate shirt with like the album cover design. And then he also did like a reproduction of like the 82 Nylon Curtain Tour shirt. And I, uh, of course, I bought them all up. Yeah, I don't think I've seen those shirts. I mean, I didn't, you know, when I went to see them, I didn't think I couldn't look at the merch. I didn't mm-hmm. have the budget for it, so I didn't even uh, bother myself with it. Yeah, but, I don't uh, know how I afforded it because I was not making much money. You know, two of us driving around, sleeping on friends' couches and Super 8 cheap motels and, yeah. you know, just eking by and whatever extra money I had that month all went into Billy Joel shirts, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Billy Joel shirts and ramen. <laughs> and that's right. You know, as we're talking about this being like the next leg of his uh, career, you know, he starts it off with a retrospective C- uh, live CD and debuts all these new T-shirts <laughs> of right, know, right. classic albums, you know. My wife, Jenny, her and I had only been dating for like a month or so at this point. Uh-huh. And I thought it'd be cool to call her from the show and like hold the phone up and play a song. <laughs> you yeah. know, this was before you could like do FaceTime and all that stuff. Right. It just happened to be a random song, but I think the song that I was holding up the phone was during, like, Only the Good Die Young. (laughs) And she's like, of all the songs, that's the one you picked. (laughs) You know, you didn't pick, like, one of the love songs or ballads. I I chose, like, Only the Good Die Young. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, Yeah, that was a thing for a hot minute when people got told. I mean, a friend of mine saw, like, Cream when they came through and the police, and they they both did those, like, short-run reunion tours. Yep. And he would go to the show, and you get this call, and it, you would just hear like, you know, yeah. he was like, oh shit, no, 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 oh, this is like the last time they're gonna play "Sunshine of Your Love" in this, the United States. Like, everybody, shut up, you know. You're right. Yeah. You know, jumping back to these early shows, those are all mm-hmm. the the real rarities that are coming up. Now you got a couple, you know, we said "Good Night Saigon," uh, yep. "Vienna," "Ballad of Billy the Kid." I think we've discussed. It sort of like depends on what yeah. region of this country you're in whether or not billy the kid's uh, an obscurity yeah um, that's true uh lullaby makes a, a an early appearance here uh you know keeping the faith is on here and i get the feeling that keeping the faith he didn't really play that before this tour that much since you know certainly not in the early 2000s no i think he played it fairly regularly up until the stormfront tour yeah and then it kind of fell off and again, I wonder if it's the addition of Carl Fisher just having that extra horn. Because, you know, yeah. as we see at this point, it's Mark, Carl, and Crystal on horns to fill out the section on this one. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great with horns. The one thing about this song, though, too, is in the early versions of it and the studio recording up and through the first you know, five years of live performances, mm-hmm. the guitar was the focal point, that great riff that um, Russell and David were playing. But by this incarnation of the song, it was... Billy's keyboard was kind of the focal. Right. It had a much different sound than it did back in the day. Yeah, definitely. And um, now the other thing here is that we, we should note that by now he's he's lowering the keys on a lot of these songs. 
and I think this is the first tour he's doing it, at least kind of. Yeah, I think maybe in '03, maybe some of them started to nudge their way down a little bit, mm-hmm. but I think this was the first time where like most songs were lower. Right, and you know, keeping the faith. I remember hearing like just a live version of it later on. Like, wow, you can really tell on this one. But yeah. you know, I tell you what, man. For the most part, if you're listening for it, yeah, you're going to notice that everything's a note or two lower. But it it really put him in such great voice that you know made him sound a little younger. I think because he was he was in a back in a comfortable register, right? Where it actually right. said, felt like it sounded higher, and and a little more youthful because there wasn't any strain to it. Right, he wasn't having to strain it quite as much. Yeah. yeah. In fact, from what I heard, a couple times on this tour, he actually sings all the notes on An Innocent Man for the first time in a while. And then yeah. not much mm-hmm. after that. Again, a lot right. of times those high IMs, that's all crystal. And then he kind of blends back in on yep. the word An Innocent, uh, Innocent Man. Yeah. So, you know, lowering them gave, gave him his shot to do that. And if memory serves, he didn't sing that part live after it came out until then. That's right. Yeah, because in the 80s, it was Peter Hewlett singing all the high notes with background vocals. And because Peter did the bridge tours. And then by the time it was yeah Peter, Frank Sims, and then Peter and George Sims. And then by Stormfront, Crystal was singing the high parts. Yeah, must have been bringing it down. Just gave him a little uh, oomph there. A couple other ones that pop up a lot. Um, Root Beer Rag. Mm-hmm. He's done a run of shows here. Shameless is in there yeah. at least once. But Root Beer Rag definitely makes a run of things. And another way for Billy to get that vocal break, you know, any little vocal break just made it for a better show for him. You know, it's funny, too, because he does We Didn't Start the Fire pretty much every time now. And uh, there were a good couple of shows here where it wasn't on there. Yeah. I know Stopping Nevada's in here somewhere. Can't quite Mm -hmm. find it. The other thing he does, too, is on My Life at the beginning, he does a couple different, he kind of overlays couple different pieces on the beginning there when it's mostly his left hand yep. on the lower keys and the bass notes. So the big one you hear a lot was um, Ode to Joy. In fact, I'm live from Long Island. If if you watch it, if it seems that my life starts kind of weird and abruptly because they did the same thing, but they oh, yeah. couldn't get it cleared or whatever. So they just lopped off the whole intro. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't make it onto um, 12 Gardens Live either. No. February 7th. 2007, Jacksonville, Florida. Stop in Nevada. First time live since 1974. Wow. Okay, so uh, Leningrad makes an appearance for a run in June, at the end of June into July. So he does it in Vienna, he does it in Hamburg, and he does it in Frankfurt. Does he? I'm so okay. Yeah, I was about to say, does he not do Vienna in Vienna? But he does. Okay. Okay. Just, yeah. just making sure. <laughs> yeah. And now that we're getting into the tour, the big one. Did you see the live in Rome? You've seen the live in Rome video, right? Yes. Yeah. Here we go. So July 31st, 2006. Uh, also a very typical set list. But as the other set list, this one starts with Angry Young Man. And a friend of mine who also happens to be named Billy just happened to send this to me a couple of weeks ago. I was like, hey, man, did you ever see this one? And the long story short is there's a problem with the piano. And, you know, as we've seen Billy throw hissy fits before, this one was he, he held himself pretty well. But he did. He's he's already screwing it up. <laughs> he's already right. having a little trouble. And I kind of came. This is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. But I came up with this theory that it was somebody pulled the plug to give him a second. Like I came up with this idea that like he did it on purpose just to give him something. Oh better, right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> just some silliness on my part. But yeah. So he they start playing and it's in front of was at the Coliseum. 
Yep. Yeah, so they're actually playing at the Coliseum. Now, when you see these clips online, you're going to be like, oh, what are you doing? It's just the backdrop. It's not the backdrop. No. He's at the Coliseum. When he says, like, yeah, which really is, that must have pissed him off, too. That would pissed me off, man. You're just like, you know, this is like the closest you're going to get to, like, Pink Floyd or Pompeii. Once in a lifetime kind of gig, yeah. Yeah, and there's a problem on the first song. But yeah, when he does the entertainer, he says, I played all kinds of palaces. He gestures towards the Coliseum. <laughs> so he's playing a, you know, a couple bum notes here and there. And all of a sudden, you just notice the piano is nowhere to be found. He's playing, but nothing's coming out. And you see him looking around and he's trying to talk to people. And the band just kind of fades away and falters off. And they all realize, like, you know, we're stopping here. And yeah. he gets up and he just kind of slaps the keys once, you know. <laughs> and of course, yep. he's got the text. And what does he say? My piano is morte. Yeah. So he just has that one moment where he kind of gets a little mad. But hey, again, we just did the Orpheum show where he just harangues the sound guy for oh, yeah. the show until they come out and fix it for him. It's like, yeah, he could have had it worse, man. <laughs> he mellowed with age with when it comes to yeah. dealing with tech issues. But you gotta be like, man, that is like such. That's gotta be like the most rote thing. Like it's a Billy Joel show. Make sure the piano works. Like, yeah. <laughs> so you wonder where the failure was on this too, because back in the '70s and '80s and into the early '90s, Billy was playing an acoustic grand piano that was Mike. Ever since a countryman the, pickup, but yeah, <laughs> not a countryman <laughs> pickup. No. But, you know, ever since the 2000s, Billy was playing a digital grand. So it was basically a shell yeah. with a keyboard in it. Right. I remember the first time I discovered that was one of the tours. And he goes into just the way you are and he's still sitting at the grand and suddenly it's a Fender Road. So I'm like, what? That just doesn't look right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something's wrong here. Yeah. I, I tell you, man, they, they, they never got that sound right. Every time he plays just the way you are, it just sounds like a DX9 from the 80s to me. Right. This sounds like that bell sound that you just heard on everything in the 80s. Anyway, um, yeah, so everything goes wrong, and he just kind of picks it up halfway through the prelude, and the, and the band kind of comes in one by one, and you see the point, because he's eyeing to Tommy. 
that's where the communication's happening. Yeah. I guess it's all eyes on Tommy or whomever else. But yeah, and then you just hear the moment where they're all like, okay, yeah, and we're in, you know. Yeah. That's kind of funny. I want to talk about, just because I think that was a really typical set list, and then I want to talk about the one other song that makes a uh, starts making an appearance here. Because we were talking about the one in Ro- the When in Rome show, ha ha ha, which he didn't actually play When in Rome. But nope. Has he this ever? Is pretty, I don't think he has. Yeah. Um, so this was July 31st, 06, and this is a pretty typical set list with a couple curveballs thrown in there, as there is, you know, always one or two. So it's uh, Angry Young Man, My Life, uh, then Just the Way You Are, although many times he did Everybody Loves You Now or Honesty in that spot, then The Entertainer, then Honesty, then Zanzibar, then This Is The Time, New York State of Mind, Don't Ask Me Why, She's Always a Woman, Allentown, Moving Out, An Innocent Man, Uptown Girl, River of Dreams, We Didn't Start the Fire, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, and Only the Good Die Young. Uh, And then he does two covers with Brian Adams. Well, I'm sorry, two songs in the encore with Brian Adams. First one is You May Be Right. Second is the cover, Cuts Like a Knife. And then after that, it's the typical encore of scenes from an Italian restaurant, Piano Man. Now, a couple additions you'll see here and there is sometimes you get a three-song encore with scenes in Piano Man, but he'll start it with Only the Good Die Young. Uh, A couple other times he throws You May Be Right on there, but for the most part, by and large, um, these are two-song encores the whole time. And then, you know, you get the occasional Down Easter Alexa, and a lot of them, Don't Ask Me Why, happens a lot earlier in the show. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. He pretty much rides these the whole time. Uptown Girl shows up a couple times, not that it's an obscurity, but then I I think I take back what I said. He does do We Didn't Start the Fire quite a bit. In fact, just about at every show. So I was completely wrong before. And as far as we can tell, this is the first instance of Chainsaw coming out and doing Highway to Hell. I think you're right. I know, though, he had played Highway to Hell at least once prior to doing it with Chainsaw singing. Because I actually saw Billy in Florida. I want to say it was the early 2000s. Uh, It was before the 2003 tour. Um, So I think it was 2001 or 2002. I remember talking with Liberty before the show and he's like, did you recognize anyone backstage? Uh I'm like, well, just the band. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, uh-huh. why? He's like, well, we got something cool planned for tonight. I was like, oh, uh-huh. sweet. Okay. So I remember Joe starts and I went to the show by myself. And I tell you, when you're at a show by yourself, it's a lot easier to blend in. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, I wonder if I can just stay barely backstage, like near the teleprompter land, mm-hmm. just kind of be inconspicuous and hang out here and see if I can just stay instead of going to wherever my seat was. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I was able to. Mm-hmm. I'm standing there watching the show. And you know how when you see somebody walk up behind you, you can kind Uh of feel their presence. Yeah, yeah. So I can feel that. And so I look over and I'm like, wait, that's Brian Johnson from ACDC. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. And, you know, had the hat on the whole bit. And I look over and I'm like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) He's like, like, hey, man, how you doing? (laughs) I was like, I'm good, man. How are you? He's like, good. And we just kind of nodded and then just both watching the show. And he's like, I'll see you. And he walks away. <laughs> I'll up, see you. <laughs> onto the stage. And Billy and the band do Highway to Hell with Brian and Cliff Williams on bass. Oh, wow. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, man, that's cool. <laughs> I, love, I love just the scene of you standing there, like, watching the show. Because, you know, now I figure, like, you know, you're a little slack, Joe, just like, uh huh, uh huh. Right. And you look over, like, Oh, hey. <laughs> well, and, you know, this was before the Highway to Hell thing was a thing. Right, right, which so, makes it even more bizarre, yeah. So nowhere <laughs> in your head are you thinking ACDC at a Billy Joel show. 
And because uh, I think some of the guys lived in Tampa or lived in Florida or whatever. And so, uh-huh. you know, they brought him out and uh, I like did like a triple take. So you, you recognize them, though. Oh, absolutely. That's great. I guess this was actually probably the first time that they had Chainsaw doing it because this actually showed up uh, in a concert review from 2007 in the Mercury Review. And this was um, this was published November 11th, 07. Concert Review. Billy Joel hits right keys for fans. And this is his show in Oakland, California. Uh, so it says um, Billy Joel has... More than 30 top 40 singles. None of those smashes, however, turned out to be the one that evoked the wildest response. In fact, it wasn't a Joel tune at all, and the star of the evening didn't even handle the vocals on it. He simply played rhythm guitar and turned the microphone over to his guitar tech, Ricky Chainsaw, for the point, who proceeded to belt out a Bon Scott Worthy version of ACDC's Highway to Hell. I like this line here. Uh, again, because, you know, we're talking about sort of reinventing himself, and it's an interesting way to put him. He says, that says a lot about Mr. Joel. While some stars can't bear to lose the spotlight for a single moment, this 58-year-old Rock and Roll Hall of Famer is perfectly comfortable letting his guitar tech basically steal the show. <laughs> so I thought it's a nice way of putting it, you know? <laughs> That's a running theme that you hear a lot about Billy. He's always never been comfortable being the star or the front man. He's just the guy who sings the songs, so he says. Yeah. You know? And, you know was that interview with Liberty during the um, Shades of Grey documentary. He's like, we always start a record, you know, (laughs) the way Billy wants to be like playing Hammond organ in the corner of a stage in a bar band. Totally anonymous, just playing in a band. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, when he's doing this song, it's, yeah, he's got a guitar on, he's strumming along, and he's just having (laughs) fun and just watching the crowd go crazy. I remember fans on the the forums and message boards and stuff like that back then were like, Mm -hmm. oh, gosh, they did it again. They brought Chainsaw out again. I would have, like, (laughs) people were getting annoyed with it. It's like, you guys, this is super calculated at this point, because one, (laughs) it gets the crowd fired up every time, more than any Billy Joel song. (laughs) Because it's such a huge rock anthem, and it's like high-energy song. Yeah. And then it also gave Billy a three and a half minute vocal break. Yeah, exactly. It's a win win. And it really is. Who the hell else brings out a guitar tech? Because <laughs> I'll tell you this, you know, Metallica will do things during their shows to give James a vocal break. They do this thing called the Kirk and Rob doodle where it's <laughs> Kirk, the guitar player, Rob, the bass player. They would like yeah. pick a song that has some connection to the city and they would just jam it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they just wouldn't land it. It was just kind of like <laughs> awkward and weird and just didn't jive. And so yeah. the energy would dip during this section while James was taking a break. Right. This was a way to give Billy a break while keeping the energy way up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, everybody was going nuts, and this was two years after he'd been doing it already, and he'd been through Philadelphia a couple times, you know, between mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of 06 and then. So yeah, but it, yeah, it gets him every time. It really does. Yeah. The other thing that they mention in this one is he just makes a quick nod to saying Billy was in fine voice. You see that also, and now I'm going out of order, but uh, there was another review from Melbourne in Australia from the November 12th show in 06. And, you know, this guy mentions two of the same things. One, Billy Joel's uh, voice sounds great. And two, he really enjoyed the quote-unquote roadies performance of ACDC's Highway to Hell. Didn't know it quite as well, <laughs> you know. They didn't know right. the whole story that it was Chainsaw, but that's fine. This one, too, he also mentions how uh, in Australia, you know, Billy Joel jokes about, you know, that people wouldn't know all the uh, obscure songs. And let's see real quick, which did he play that night? So he does Everybody Loves You Now. He does Zanzibar. does Down Easter Alexa. That's really actually it as far as obscurities. I mean, you and I are biased, of course. But this was right. a pretty typical set list. You know, Angry Young Man, My Life, Everybody Loves You Now, Entertainer. Maybe that one was considered. 
Obscure, Don't Ask Me Why, Zanzibar, Miami, New York State of Mind, Allentown, mm-hmm. Down East, or Alexa, Moving Out. Or this is yeah. all pretty typical from here on down. Moving Out, Innocent Man, Keeping the Faith, Always a Woman, I Go to Extremes, River of Dreams, Highway to Hell, We Didn't Start the Fire, Big Shop, Still Rock and Rolling, Uptown Girl. Yeah. And then this, this was actually a four-piece encore. Scenes, Only the Good Die Young, You May Be Right in Piano, Man. Hmm. Um, one of his longer shows, actually, at least in, uh, that was his longest one in Australia, it looks like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, by, you know, by a song, but still. Yeah. Yeah, certainly the longest encore. And hmm. then, I think we found two more. Oh, yeah, I like this one. Somebody else from uh, California. The headline is, Just One Billy Joel Show? What Gives? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny for California. The guy even notes in the review that, hey, man, I know he's like the bigger superstar on the East Coast because I know he's an East Coast guy, but that's ridiculous that there was one. <laughs> Not to mention by Torres End, he'll have a dozen in caps Madison Square Garden gigs and four alone in Hartford, Connecticut. Which when you think about it, Hartford, Connecticut's a stone's throw from Manhattan. Like it might as well be Manhattan at that point. Right. You know? Exactly. But uh, yeah, so that's like yeah. 16 shows in one region. I know he's an East Coast guy, but that's ridiculous. So he loved it, but uh, he was this guy was mad that he didn't get more obscurities. Although he did say that he, they got Zanzibar, the entertainer, everybody loves you now, Billy the Kid, Don't Ask Me Why, and Captain Jack. Yeah, but at this point he knew. But as a string of garden shows, he's piled on, including one of my all-time faves, the guy says, The Very Beatles, that's Laura. And he goes through all of those. So I, 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 uh, I like that this guy's um, pissed mm-hmm. off that he didn't get all the, uh, the obscurities. I think that's really cool. Just to hear Laura once, you know? Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really came... Yeah, he, he wraps it up. He says, I really came... And this, you know, again, like we've been saying, this seems to be his moment of rejuvenation. This reviewer says, I really came away from last night's show feeling like I had seen the best Billy Joe concert in this area in many moons. I still feel that way, but now I'm having a hard time feeling like I didn't get cheated out of more. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, overall, a positive review. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So those are the big three... Um, Reviews that I found from this tour, mm-hmm. but let's get the uh, the Michael's Eye view because you. How many did you see again? I, I knew you told me like probably forty minutes yeah. ago, and I forgot. <laughs> yeah, so I saw two. I saw night number three of the entire tour, which was January twelfth, two thousand six, St. Pete Times Forum in Tampa, Florida, and then I also saw May fourth, two thousand seven, at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Jenny and I went to that one together. And by that point, it was a fairly standard set list in 2007. Um, We did, however, we got Captain Jack, which was great. Yeah, Yeah. we didn't get that a lot in Michigan. So that was exciting. Nice. Whenever he plays Detroit, he always tends to play a lot of Motown, a lot of Detroit stuff. A snippet here or there, but he was doing a lot of that. You know, he did a little bit of Dancing in the Street, um, Heard It Through the Grapevine, C.C. Ryder. He did Old Time Rock and Roll, some Bob Seger in there. And then uh, we did get Chainsaw doing Highway to Hell there as well. Funny, I was just skimming along these set lists from that spreadsheet you sent over, and uh, one just caught my eye that he, one of the garden shows, they did yeah. a snippet of Pop Goes the Weasel, third base. Yeah, and the Weasel Goes Pop. <laughs> yep. But what's hilarious about that to me is Pop Goes the Weasel obviously samples Sledgehammer, right? Yeah. Well, guess who played on Sledgehammer? Mark Rivera. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that was an easy, uh, an easy ad. There. That was a gimme, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. 
Oh, I'm sorry. All for Lena shows up. Oh yeah, I didn't mention that. All for Lena shows up. I've a few times. Honestly, uh, one of my favorites on Twelve Gardens is um, the night is still young. Yeah, it kind of stripped away from some of the '80s production trappings. You know, you really get a nice better bones of the song there. And I think part of it too, it's still in the original key. Crystal's taking the upper register. You know, in the studio recording, it's Billy doing the lower part and the higher part. Yeah. Well, it worked out perfectly in this band because Crystal could do the younger Billy upper register part. <laughs> Billy could stick with the lower part and they blended so well together. And those background vocals, yeah, just really sounded fantastic on it. Mm-hmm. And that's our recap of this mammoth 2006-2007 tour. Two years... Over 110 shows, four continents, a bunch of obscurities, a new drummer. And some new excitement for playing live again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of excitement on these. Uh, You know, if you want to follow along now, you know, having listened to all this and checked it out, uh, your three big mementos are obviously the 12 Gardens live album. Mm -hmm. And then if you go on YouTube, there are two great full videos. One is uh, Billy Joel Live at Tokyo Dome 2006, and that's from the November 30th of 06 show. The whole show, pro shot, you know, captions and everything, so I guess maybe it was a special or something. The other one, also pro shot, looks great, sounds great, is Billy Joel Live in Rome 2006, and that is the July 31st 06 show. I almost feel like we didn't do enough, just because it was such a huge tour, but... What are you yeah. going to do but talk down every set list? Uh, you know, it's there for you to see. Maybe maybe we'll make a link to the uh, to the set list spreadsheet so people can see it. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Uh, yeah. When we post this episode, uh, we'll put it in the comments uh, below the post so you guys can check it out and burn down these set lists and see how things change night to night. You'll see where the regular set list settled in. But there were a lot of fun surprises that popped up all throughout both years. Yeah. I would love to be able to uncover is some of these years where these set lists were not documented. If somewhere, somehow there's an archive of some of these old set lists, it'd really yeah. be fun to see. But at any rate, uh, as far as these go, that's 0607. And as always, uh, we want to hear from you guys. Um, who is at these shows? Who noticed a change? Did you guys notice a different attitude in 06 from 03? You know, in the moment, you might not realize it. But with the benefit of hindsight, we see what a sea change it was going into these shows and, and what that meant for the next 15 years of his career. Yeah, it was so much fun to see Billy finally enjoying himself again. I think he really needed the break that the last couple of years gave him. You don't have a chance to miss it if you're doing it nonstop all the time for your whole life. So to <laughs> yeah. be able to completely step away and have like two years where you're not playing shows at all you really start to miss it and you know adding chuck into the band and getting a new flavor that way and starting to pull out some of these old songs that haven't been played in years it really seems like he was having a lot of fun again and that that was great to see so let us know what you think uh you know where to find us uh glasshousespod.com we're on all the socials facebook instagram and twitter but uh you can find us on those three at glasshouses a billy joel podcast or email us directly at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com yeah please reach out we'd love to hear from you guys we'd love reading your stories and your insights and it's a big community i know we're the two behind the microphones but you all make it possible and make it fun for jack and i so uh please reach out to us yeah you know uh, we keep meaning to start trying to read these on on the episodes as they come out but we tend to record these maybe a week or two if not more ahead of time and sometimes out of order and there's so much that goes into it that i think we start recording and i'm like oh shoot we still didn't compile all those comments so we're thinking about it we definitely read them all my favorite part like a tuesday morning i have to say is 
two things. One is watching the numbers rise as soon as we publish these. I just keep going into the dashboard and just, it's so cool to see so many people. And then we get some great comments too early on. You know, we put the post out and people are just hitting them up and it's really fun to read all day. Yeah, you guys are great. It's really cool to know that there's other fans out there like us who like, love to just geek out on this music and think about this stuff in, a, in an unorthodox way, I suppose. It's so much fun just hearing your takes and we love hearing when you agree with us. We love hearing when you don't agree with us and yeah. we love all points of view and everything in between and it's just so much fun hearing what you guys have to say as well. And with that, we'll see you next time. All right, we'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone.